Jane Klebb remembers the exact day she first heard about the Keystone XL oil pipeline. It was early 2010. She was a political organizer in Nebraska. And she got a call from a farmer who told her a company called TransCanada was trying to build an oil pipeline through his land. And I, you know, am not an environmentalist. I didn't know anything about pipelines. She had just started a group called Bold Nebraska. She was focusing mainly on health care issues. But she agreed to go to a public meeting on the pipeline that the U.S. State Department was holding. I honestly thought it would be a bunch of government bureaucrats and there'd be like five people there. And I walked into the room in York, Nebraska, which is a small rural town here. And the room was packed with farmers and ranchers. Her husband's from a ranching family, so she knows these people. And she knew this was unusual. Normally they are quiet and um, understated and prefer to be with the cattle, right? Like, leave me with the cattle and everybody else can go about their business. But here they were, standing up in front of government officials, speaking passionately about their land that had been passed down through generations, about their fears the groundwater could be polluted by the oil from the Canadian tar sands this pipeline would help carry all the way to the Gulf Coast. And I looked at my friend after that hearing and I said, we got to organize on this. We can beat this pipeline. Now, <laughs> looking back, that was maybe super naive of me because it is a multi-billion dollar company. But deep in my gut, I fundamentally thought this is a bad deal and we've got to stop it. Jane Klebb had no way of knowing it at the time, but those stoic ranchers would soon be demonstrating in front of the White House, even going to jail. Those ranchers would become the face of the fight over what would become the world's most famous pipeline. Because before Standing Rock, before Line 3, there was Keystone XL, a pipeline that became one of the most powerful symbols in the fight against climate change. I'm Dan Crocker, and this is Rivers of Oil. It's a podcast from Minnesota Public Radio about the oil pipelines that flow beneath our feet and why they have suddenly become such a powerful symbol of the growing conflict over fossil fuels. In a lot of ways, it all starts with Keystone XL. Before Keystone, few people in the U.S. gave much thought to pipelines. There would maybe be some local opposition, but if an energy company said they needed one to get oil or natural gas to markets, then for the most part, they built it. Since then, though, it's not just local landowners fighting pipelines in their backyards anymore. It's environmental groups and Native Americans and farmers and ranchers. And a crucial addition to the alliance, climate change activists. Because once you inject climate change into the debate, the issue affects not just the people in or near a pipeline's path. It potentially affects everyone in the world. But how did it start? How did a mundane pipeline project become such an influential rallying cry? Before thousands were gathering on the frozen prairie at Standing Rock, before anyone was giving a second thought to pipelines, how did Keystone XL become something that could energize an entire movement against the fossil fuel industry? I wanted to start at the very beginning of the story, even before Jane Klebb got involved in Nebraska. So I called up a guy who was one of the first people involved in the fight against Keystone. Well, good morning. This is Kenny Bruno, and I'm speaking to you from Brooklyn, New York. And I'm an environmental consultant. And he's been working in environmental activism for decades, including several years with Greenpeace. Kenny first heard about the pipeline around the time President Obama first got elected in 2008. He learned about it from indigenous people in Canada 
who were concerned about the expansion of the Alberta tar sands. And I think like most uh, Americans, I had never heard of the tar sands and I had never heard of Keystone Pipeline. But the more Kenny looked into it, the more he and other environmentalists became convinced they needed to do something to slow down development in the oil sands. The region was expanding like crazy at the time, driven by oil prices that blew past $100 a barrel. And oil from the tar sands is a lot more carbon-intensive than conventional crude. The government estimates that from the time the oil is extracted to when it's used, it contributes roughly 17% more greenhouse gas emissions than the average oil refined in the U.S. But Kenny and others faced a huge challenge trying to slow down the tar sands boom. Oil companies in Alberta were expanding as fast as they could. So rather than trying to stop the oil production itself, instead, they focused on the transport of the oil. Because that's a kind of efficient way of, you know, getting on a weak link or a weak point in the system of the tar sands industry. From the beginning, though, Kenny was not optimistic. Take a look at his adversaries, he says. The Canadian government, the government of Alberta, one of the most powerful industries on earth, the oil industry, and much of the U.S. political establishment. And our allies were some tribal nations, small ones, and some ranchers and farmers along the route. You know, that's like the junior varsity going up against the New York Yankees. So obviously, we were the underdogs. Plus, the momentum to seriously confront climate change was quickly dying. Global climate talks had failed to produce any meaningful agreement, and an ambitious plan to rein in climate change died in Congress. In his news conference this week, President Obama acknowledged that another approach to controlling greenhouse gas emissions is a non-starter. The creation in that environment, stopping Keystone XL seemed like longer than a long shot. Because stopping any big energy infrastructure project on climate change grounds was something that no one could ever remember happening. But a turning point came in 2011, when this guy joined the fight. I'm Bill McKibben. I'm a writer who wrote the first book on climate change some 30 years ago, and then founded a group called 350.org, which has become the first big global grassroots climate campaign. I reached him on Skype at his home in Vermont. He had just returned from Australia, where he was helping a campaign against coal mines. The name 350.org is based on a calculation that the safe upper limit for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is 350 parts per million. Whether that's true is debatable. We're already well past 400 parts per million. But there is overwhelming scientific consensus that human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide, are the dominant cause of global warming, which leads to everything from rising sea levels to heavy rainfall and heat waves. And the magnitude of climate change over the next few decades will largely depend on the amount of carbon dioxide we continue to emit. Bill McKibben fervently believes the Alberta oil sands is a huge pool of carbon that needs to stay in the ground. So he's embraced an assertive brand of environmental activism, one focused on going beyond just encouraging consumers to use less electricity or oil. I think what was new was this beginning of understanding that we needed to do way more than just tell people to change their light bulbs. And Keystone made an appealing target. It was slated to carry a huge amount of carbon-intensive oil a long way, across the heartland of America on its way to the Gulf Coast. And since it crossed an international border, President Obama had to sign off on it. 
And so we figured that since he was on record as being very concerned about climate change, this was uh, a perfect moment to show it. So he organized a protest at the White House. And not just any protest. He planned a sit-in that would stretch over two full weeks, where different people would get arrested each day. We thought that it was really important here because people didn't know about pipelines. So uh, a bunch of us wrote a letter asking people to come to Washington and do, as we put it, very civil, civil disobedience. Um, in fact, we asked people to show up wearing uh, a necktie or a dress if they were coming to demonstrate that there was not the slightest thing radical about what we were asking for. And among the people he reached out to was Jane Klebb in Nebraska. He called me up and said that he wanted to make sure that the farmers and ranchers approved of this action before they moved forward. Now, the farmers and ranchers Jane was organizing began fighting Keystone XL for much different reasons than Bill McKibben. They were largely concerned about their land and their water, not climate change. She remembers giving PowerPoint presentations that included slides about it. They're definitely tough and gritty. And uh, they would kind of lean back in their chairs and fold their arms whenever I would bring up the climate change slides. They were fine talking about oil pollution, but climate change in the beginning, nobody was really having. But there was also a feeling that if they had any hope of winning this David versus Goliath battle, the two sides needed to cooperate. The ranchers and farmers in Nebraska fighting for their backyard and the climate change activists, the big national environmental groups, fighting, in a sense, for a global backyard. You know, there was this clear sense that we had to do it together, that our local group definitely needed the national because they brought not only financial resources, but they also brought a huge amount of expertise that I just did not have. And the national groups needed us locally because we were putting up, you know, fierce resistance, obviously, on the front line. But they also needed our stories. Because they understood that people could relate to farmers and ranchers speaking from the heart about threats to their land and their livelihoods. That was more tangible than trying to wrap your head around complicated climate change models. If we were just to have said, we're going to fight Keystone XL on the grounds of climate and make our case on the grounds of climate, we definitely would have lost. So Jane rounded up some landowners and boarded a plane for Washington for Bill McKibben's protest. I was uh, on a flight with Randy Thompson, who really became kind of the face of the campaign. And Randy is a tall rancher. Like he is, if you can imagine a rancher, kind of a Marlboro man, you know, that's Randy. The night before the protest began, Randy and other ranchers stood up to explain why they had flown across the country. Keystone XL was slated to cross an area known as the Sand Hills, where the Ogallala Aquifer lies just below the lush grasslands, and where ranchers like Randy have grazed their cattle for generations. And it was interesting because they definitely talked about protecting their property rights, but they mostly talked about protecting the land for their kids and their grandkids. And that, you know, for Randy, his mom and dad worked decades to make enough money to actually own the land that they rented for so long and worked for years. Myself, I have uh, livestock watering wells. I have irrigation wells. We would be close to the pipeline. This is from a TV interview Randy gave at the time. Well, you know, to put it bluntly, I'm angry as hell when people 
want to play political football games with my livelihood. And Randy was doing everything he could to protect his family's legacy that was passed down to him to make sure that that land was still going to be farmed instead of having an oil pipeline come through it. The next day, Jane and Randy and other protesters assembled across the street from the White House. Bill McKibben addressed them. We don't know exactly what's going to happen here today. We know that we're going to walk across the street and risk arrest. We're going to be... More than a 1,000 people ended up getting arrested, including Randy and other Nebraska ranchers. That first protest sparked a relentless campaign to block the pipeline that would last for years. A few months later, Bill McKibben planned another event. This time, several thousand people came. They linked arms in a human chain, encircling the White House. Keystone XL had struck a national nerve. People did rally around it because it was something that they could pretty easily understand. Kenny Bruno says activists had succeeded in turning the pipeline into a tangible symbol of climate change. Something that was black and white, right and wrong, that they could come out and say, yes, we're against the pipeline because it's bad for the climate. And this is something we can work on and we can throw our energy into. The payoff came on November 6th, 2015. Good morning, everybody. President Obama announced that after extensive review and public outreach, he decided the project would not serve the national interest. Now, for years, the Keystone Pipeline has occupied what I frankly consider an overinflated role in our political discourse. It became a symbol too often used as a campaign cudgel by both parties rather than a serious policy matter. And all of this obscured the fact that this pipeline would neither be a silver bullet for the economy, as was promised by some, uh, nor the express lane to climate disaster proclaimed by others. Bill McKibben and others fighting pipelines admit that Keystone XL on its own might not be an express lane to climate disaster, but it's part of a system of fossil fuel production and transportation that contributes to climate change. And he believes they need to target every part of that system all over the world. You know, every frack well, every coal mine, every new oil terminal, everything gets fought and fought hard. And we win a surprising number of these battles. Even when we don't win, it obviously slows down the ability of the fossil fuel industry to expand. Uh, costs them time and money. Pipeline opponents have certainly succeeded in delaying Keystone XL, but they haven't stopped it. President Trump reversed Obama's decision and granted the pipeline a permit, but it's still uncertain whether the company will build it. Whatever happens, the movement did capture the industry's attention. Keystone has even become part of their vocabulary. I mean, we've clearly seen a, a change in the debate. This is a guy named Marty Durbin, who used to work at the American Natural Gas Association, speaking at an industry event a couple years ago. I sometimes hesitate to put it this way, but call it the keystonization of every pipeline project that's out there. You know, if we can stop one permit, we can stop the development of fossil fuels. So now the industry is fighting back. We have a lot of guests we need to fit in the room, so the more that of you that are willing to come forward, the better. A few months ago, I went to a news conference in St. Paul put on by supporters of the Line 3 oil pipeline project. 
groups with names like Jobs for Minnesotans and Minnesotans for Line 3. Business leaders, labor union members, politicians, they were all dressed in these neon green t-shirts that said, we support safe energy transportation. And one by one, they stood up to voice their support for the proposed new pipeline across Minnesota. This project will have an economic impact of more than $2 billion in our state. Several of the speakers stress the one talking point you hear most often at public meetings about pipelines, and that's jobs. How Line 3 would create good-paying work for thousands of construction workers. But a lot of people also did something else. They made the case for the oil the pipeline would carry. If you drove here in a car, you were using gasoline that came from crude oil, that came from Line 3. This is Cam Winton, a lobbyist with the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce. If you came here in a bus, well, the bus is running diesel that came from crude oil, that came from Line 3. The asphalt those cars and buses drive on, Winton points out, is made from oil. The airplanes that fly out of the airport? The plane was running jet fuel that came from crude oil, that came from Line 3. If you've eaten... Oh, I'm not done. I got two more. I got two more. I think folks want to hear them. I got two more. If you've ever eaten grain, the farmers dried the grain using propane that came from crude oil that came from Line 3. And there's a good chance the meat you eat comes from animals that ate that grain. Now, we don't know specifically if all those products were made with oil from Line 3. But the oil shipped through Line 3 does go to refineries that make the gas and diesel and jet fuel. On one hand, this all felt a little strange to me. I mean, we live in an era where our society relies on oil, yes. But we largely take that oil for granted. We don't think about it. And we certainly don't celebrate it. Because oil, well, it's dirty. It spills. It's one of the main drivers of climate change. But here were people singing the praises of oil, of fossil fuels. This is what's happened since Keystone. As activists have found more success challenging installing pipelines, now we're seeing the counter-movement. It is fascinating. And I wouldn't have been somebody I would have ever thought standing up celebrating something like that. This is Eric Forsman, one of the people wearing one of those neon t-shirts at the news conference. He's 30, and he works in economic development for an electric utility in Duluth. He agrees it sounds weird to trumpet the benefits of oil like that, but he says it's the reality of the world we live in. Pretty much everything has oil in it. It's insane. But until we're either willing to sacrifice some of our current quality of life that we all have, or technology really advances to the point that we we don't need things like oil. I do think there's a there's a case to be made for for celebrating a resource that allows us all to do the things we do every day in life. Eric isn't out there screaming go oil or anything like that. He believes in climate change. I can barely even finish the question before he tells me yes, burning fossil fuels contributes to it. But he believes if there's demand for oil, it's going to get drilled or mined or fracked somewhere, regardless of whether or not a single pipeline through Minnesota gets approved. Still, that's a hard message to get across, because the average person just doesn't give much thought to oil. Enbridge is trying hard to get people to think more about it. The company has actually gone so far as to give out vouchers for free gas. They also had a little card that went with it that kind of showed from start to finish where oil goes and how it gets into your car. And I thought that was a great way to show the average person who the average person doesn't know much um, about pipelines and how they impact their daily lives. 
And he's right. Most people don't know much about pipelines or where their gas comes from. Hey, can I bug you? Producer Julie Seipel stopped by a gas station in the Twin Cities to ask people about it. And I'm just wondering, do you know where your gas comes from? Like, do you know where the oil that you just put in your car comes from? I don't, um, other than me seeing the trucks come and put it in the ground. <laughs> not really. No, I don't. <laughs> no, not really. Um, no, not exactly. I don't know. Do you have any guess? Um, somewhere in the Middle East? I mean, I'm assuming most of it's from overseas. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Most people are like how I was before I started work on this podcast. They don't think much about oil or the role it plays in their lives. And that makes Eric's job really hard. Because while he and others are trying to convince people of the need for infrastructure like pipelines, others are trying at least as hard to convince people of the impacts those pipelines have on climate change. My name is Andy Pearson. I work with the Minnesota 350 organization, and specifically here in the Midwest, I've been working on Line 3. Line 3, of course, is the new pipeline Enbridge wants to build across northern Minnesota that would carry almost 400,000 additional barrels of oil a day from Canada. And Minnesota 350 is one of the first local chapters that formed out of Bill McKibben's national group. When I asked Andy why he's focused so intently on pipelines to fight climate change, he said it really comes down to numbers. He pointed to the environmental review of the Line 3 proposal. The Minnesota Department of Commerce calculated the pipeline's so-called social cost of carbon. That's an estimate of the long-term damage of carbon dioxide emissions, things like property damage from increased flood risk and impacts on human health. The estimate for Line 3 from state officials $287 billion. This is a very big-ticket project uh, with, with a, a massive potential to impact not only our immediate emissions picture, but emissions for the next 50 years, which is, the say, the average lifespan of one of these pipelines now. Climate activists like to say infrastructure is destiny. If a company spends billions of dollars to build a pipeline, it's going to get used for as long as possible. It locks us into decades of continued fossil fuel use. It's economics. The longer it gets used, the lower the cost per barrel shipped. Because these pipelines are such massive levers over whether extraction happens at all at the source, uh, if you want to keep it in the ground, you need to not build pipelines. That's since become one of the mantras of the climate change movement, keep the oil in the ground. They say the cost to society of burning that oil are just too high. This is a moral issue, they argue, to protect the planet for future generations. But people fighting for pipelines also believe there is a moral argument for oil. You know, there's questions about the social cost of carbon, but I think there's also needs to be questions asked about the, the benefits of of burning fossil fuels. This is Paul Eberth, you know, the guy who directs the Line 3 replacement project for Enbridge in Minnesota. And Paul brings up an example from Duluth when he talks about the social benefits of oil. Duluth is on Lake Superior, and ocean-going ships actually sail all the way here, through the Great Lakes, to pick up grain that's grown in the Midwest, to take to Europe and Africa, where it's used to make things like pasta and couscous. It's diesel fuel that then powers the train, to bring the grain to our port here in Duluth. Then it's diesel fuel that powers that ship to move that food product to Africa so people can, can eat, right? Those products are not easily replaced today with renewable energy. That's not to say that pipelines feed people, but oil does largely fuel global commerce. And I want to point out something here. 
Yes, Paul works in the energy industry. And while it's true some in the industry have tried to undermine the science of climate change, neither Paul nor Enbridge are climate change deniers. In fact, I attended a public hearing on Line 3 in St. Paul where a guy in the crowd grilled him on that. At least 97% of climate scientists assert that global warming is occurring due largely to atmospheric emissions from human sources, particularly the burning of fossil fuels. Do you agree or disagree with the assessment of these scientists? You know, I, I don't have the... Sorry. Do you agree or disagree with the assessment of these scientists? Yes. You, you can't agree. ask a question without him responding, so let him have an opportunity to respond. The, the, this is Paul Ebers with Enbridge, and, and the scientists aren't given to me, nor are the reports, but I'll answer that I do believe that climate change is occurring. And is caused by human sources, including the burning of fossil fuels? I believe that human sources are contributing to climate change. Including the burning of fossil fuels? Including the burning of fossil fuels. Thank you. One of Paul's first jobs at Enbridge was actually to manage the construction of a wind farm the company built. But Enbridge's core business is to deliver oil and gas, which are large contributors to climate change. Paul believes we eventually have to make a transition to renewable sources of energy. He just thinks fossil fuels need to play an important role during that transition. Let's just look at jet fuel, for example. There is so much energy in such a small package that we can then put that in a plane, fly with it, right, and and be able to move uh, either goods or people, uh, you know, across the continent or across the world. Um, batteries would be too heavy to allow an airplane to operate like that today, right? So crude oil provides just a very unique fuel that, uh, you know, still powers our quality of life today. The question becomes, how long can we continue to rely on fossil fuels to power that quality of life before that very quality of life is threatened by climate changes? The people fighting pipelines say we need to start aggressively moving away from fossil fuels now. But what kind of impact will stopping pipelines have on our oil consumption, on climate change? To try to get some answers, we called up Michael Weber again. And I'm a professor in mechanical engineering and deputy director of the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. And I asked him, okay, say Minnesota says no to line three. Would that keep oil in the ground? In the short term, he says, trains would likely move some of the oil that's already being produced. But in the long term, stopping pipelines like line three would likely keep some oil in the tar sands in the ground. If you can't get a pipeline built, then it makes it expensive to get the oil sands to market. That will inhibit the investment in the oil sands. So that becomes sort of a throttle on investment for oil sands. So the pipelines are the weak link in the supply chain, so to speak. And so environmentalists attack that because it's a lot easier to stop one pipeline than it is to stop dozens or hundreds of different individual oil production projects. But even if activists succeed in keeping oil in the ground in the tar sands, if Keystone XL or Line 3 or any other pipeline is blocked, there is still global demand for oil. And that worldwide demand is growing. It's not slowing down. So won't that oil just get produced somewhere else? and still contribute to global climate change? Oil is a very fungible commodity. It can be moved from one corner of the world to another corner of the world in a variety of ways. And so stopping one pipeline or delaying one project doesn't stop the flow of oil around the world. But if activists start to have more and more success stopping pipelines, for instance, Line 3 in Minnesota, that could start to have a cumulative effect. So I think that this one pipeline really is going to make a huge difference on the balance of oil supply and demand. 
but it does send a signal. It does invite other policy options. It does give politicians cover to pursue other policies. And that's what activists fighting Line 3 and other pipelines ultimately want, to stop fossil fuel projects long enough to create a space for alternative energy and climate-friendly solutions to flourish. For nearly four years now, they've been waging that fight in Minnesota, a fight to protect the lakes and rivers, to protect tribal lands, to protect the climate. And for just as long, pipeline advocates have been fighting for the jobs it would provide, and ultimately for the benefits the oil delivered by that line would provide to the world. Both sides have waited for years of studies and recommendations. They've packed crowded public meetings across the state, submitted testimony, spoken at hearings, written letters. And now, in a bland-looking government meeting room in downtown St. Paul, those competing forces will meet one last time, where it will all come down to a decision made by five people, five appointed Minnesota regulators— And the outcome will go a long way toward determining what happens in the bigger war over pipelines. Good morning. Coming through okay? Very good. We are here for a meeting of the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission. A decision on line three. That's next time on Rivers of Oil. Rivers of Oil is a production of Minnesota Public Radio News. It's produced by me, Dan Crocker, and Julie Seipel. Bill Wareham is our editor. Veronica Rodriguez engineered this episode. Thanks also to Johnny Vince Evans for all his help mixing. Cody Nelson is our associate producer. He also composed our theme music. Meg Martin is our managing editor of projects and podcasts. We've been covering the story of pipelines in Minnesota for NPR News, and we'll continue doing that. If you'd like to follow the developments in the Line 3 story, find us at nprnews.org.